I'd rather be a good person than a good photographer. And to me, that means slowing down, taking the time, making that connection. When you are vulnerable with people and when, you, when you're willing to give, give of yourself to them as a photographer and as a person and as a journalist, then I think that we get a more complete and more honest look at the people. Hello and welcome everyone to the Photo Forward podcast, where we explore the stories behind some of the greatest visual storytellers in the world. From their photographic origins to finding work-life balance as creative professionals, to how to actually make a living as a photographer, cinematographer, or multimedia creator, we uncover what makes them tick and their shutters click. I'm your host, Ben Brewer. Today's episode is all about connections. Not in the smarmy LinkedIn request crap networking sort of way, but in the genuine engagement and empathic authenticity that you can only achieve from true photojournalism greatness. But before we get into all of today's episode, I want to give a big thanks to everyone who's listening, subscribing, and dropping a rating or review on the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. It means so much to me seeing you guys connecting and really creating a community around the show. And going forward, I'm going to be shouting out some of my favorite reviews each week. So comment of the week comes from the user dwillowtree with great insight. Looking forward to more. Thanks a ton, dwillowtree. I'm looking forward to making more. All right, let's get into the show. Who better to learn from than a photographer who would self-proclaim to rather be a good person than a great photographer? building meaningful connections with the individuals in their photos, and building a rapport through words before ever picking up a camera to capture images. Today's guest, Alyssa Shukar, is an excellent resource to learn from for any working photographer. Alyssa Shukar is a Washington, D.C.-based documentary photographer and educator. In her personal work, she is most interested in documenting how the environment and public policies affect communities. She believes photojournalists advance and improve the industry by supporting each other. In 2019, Alyssa and two colleagues launched Prism Photo Workshops, which provides support and advocacy for young photographers of diverse backgrounds, which we'll get into all the details of in this week's episode as well. She is also a returning faculty member of the Missouri Photo Workshop. In this week's episode, we explore the process of transitioning from a staff position to freelancing work across the country, how to deeply connect with the individuals in your photos, even in a fast-paced news scenario, and why the art of the personal project and sharing it with editors, is the ultimate fast track for getting your work seen and being hired for similar jobs. Show notes and photos from today's episode can be found at photoforward.media forward slash podcast. So without any further ado, today's killer interview with photojournalist Alyssa Shukar. Alyssa, welcome to the Photo Forward podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. All right. Awesome. Well, there's a lot of different ways I want to go in this conversation, you know, touching on being a freelancer, uh, some of the work you did in North Dakota, of course. Uh, but first off, I just want to start with kind of what it, what you think it means to be a Midwest photographer. So as a as a fellow Midwesterner, you know, what's sort of unique about being a photographer uh, from the Midwest? Sure, that's a good question. Um you know, it's funny that you asked that because less than a month ago I moved to DC. So mm-hmm. while I may not physically be in the Midwest, I feel like it's still a big part of, of who I am and it really informs my work, especially as I think about the people back home who um, are often overlooked. I mean, we talk about flyover country and I think that's that's a real thing and that Though I live in D.C., many of the people that I've met in my work and in my life um, are affected by things that happen in this city, even though they are so far away from it. Um, You know, I think about often this woman I know in Nebraska, which is where I'm from, who lives in a one-woman town. Her name is Elsie Eiler, and she lives in Monowai. She'd lived there for about, she's lived there almost her entire life and has lived there alone for the past 15 years or so following the death of her husband. And she's got like a, a tavern there and people from like a 16 mile radius come around to spend time with her to have like a cup of coffee or to have a beer or play a game of pinochle. I feel like she has 
informed my work in more ways than anyone else because she taught me the value of slowing things down and having a conversation. You would think that a, a one-woman town would be a very lonely thing, but she's one of the most connected people I've ever met. So I always think about that when I'm working out in the field and when I'm interacting with people about like the value of taking a moment to stop and make a genuine connection with someone and to show them through your presence and through your photography that, that they matter to you. And so I think like you can have that sensibility in any part of the world where you're working, but it's one that maybe we're a little bit more accustomed to because life is a little bit more quiet and slower in the Midwest in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. How, how do you kind of slow down? Because a lot of times we're out on assignments that, you know, it's moving quick, moving quick, filing pictures, all of that. How do you still kind of balance that dichotomy of slowing down and capturing all of that at the same time? Oh yeah, it can be tough. I mean, whether it's a, um, a newspaper or magazine assignment or something for a more commercial or nonprofit um, client, it's, it's often something where we really have to connect with someone as quickly as possible. And I think in a lot of ways that that's a learned skill, um, being able to, to make someone feel like they're the center of your world for that time. It can be really intense in a lot of ways because it's this quick building of a relationship where you're trying to understand them and you're trying to also be vulnerable with them so that they, that they will open up to you and that they will help you, help you. They'll basically enable you to tell their story better. Um, so there's no like one way to do it. I think it really depends a lot on, on the people, but I'm always surprised by how willing others are to be, to be photographed and to have their stories told and to feel understood in some capacity. And I think that that's like, that's a privilege but it's also like a pretty big responsibility that we that we don't do it wrong. And that's what's so hard when we're working quickly on a job where we have to turn images around right away is it's it's fleeting and, and we can't always do the most complete job. But I think that's, you know, what years of experience can can enable you to do is get in, understand someone to the best of your abilities and um, share their stories with the viewers. Is that a skill that you've you've always had, or is that something as oh, like no. growing up? Like no, <laughs> no. Tell you what, I was a painfully ch uh, shy child and teenager, um, and that's uh, something that's that's definitely had to be developed. I think you know I came to photography because I was interested in taking pictures of inanimate objects in, <laughs> in my family's backyard with my dad's old Pentax. Um, but the reason that I stayed in it, stayed in it is that I realized that it was a passport to the lives of others. It was a reason to connect with others. And now like, I certainly love photography and, um, enjoy, enjoy consuming it, but more than anything, I'm addicted to these interactions with people and these moments to better understand our world. Because I think that's what, that's really what we do is, is, uh, in a more intimate way and in a more um, detailed way, understand what makes up the lives that we are inhabiting. And I think um, we learn about ourselves through learning about others. Yeah, that's that's really a beautiful sentiment. And when did that transition happen? Was that kind of around, you know, college, first job? Like when did, when did that moment kind of shift for you from going like, well, I like to take pictures to, I like to tell people's stories through pictures? That's a good question. I mean, I think my goal is always to be evolving and always to be growing as a photographer and as a person. I know that I started to get that bug when I was in college, um, when I, I ha had the good fortune of being able to do four internships while I was in school. Hmm. And that was kind of the time before internships were a rare thing. So I'm, I'm very, very lucky that way. It, it's something that grew. And even leading up, uh, you earlier brought up um, the Standing Rock um, demonstrations in, South, in North Dakota, you know, having that, that experience alone, which was just four years ago, taught me about how to be a better photographer and, and taught me about how to better connect with people. And, you know, it's something that if we're open to it, we will always better evolve. And so it's been something that's really come with time. You know, I, I think 
in college, I was just trying to become a better photographer. And then right out of college, I was trying to become a better journalist or trying to survive as a journalist, which was really tough at the time. And I was fortunate to get a staff job. And then when I went into freelance, I was trying to survive as a freelancer. So like, you know, as these like big life changes happen, and as as the industry evolves, and as I evolve as a photographer, I, I'm open to these ways to to better understand and better photograph the the people and spaces surrounding me. So getting into that, uh, you actually just recently moved, uh, relocated to D.C. I think I, as somebody who's relocated recently as well, uh, how's that been going? How, how has that been transitioning your, your freelance work from one part of the country to another? You know, it's been interesting. I, I felt a lot less anxiety about it than I did moving to start freelancing in Chicago. So far, I have been on the road about half the time that I've lived here, so Mm -hmm. I can't totally speak to what it's like to be a freelancer in D.C., but I'm starting to get a sense of it. I had a political assignment in D.C. proper today, so it's kind of, you know, it's starting to come together. And I think, you know, so much of this industry is is about relationships, and so Mm -hmm. I'm I'm grateful for the past five years that I spent in Chicago getting to know the the industry, getting to understand the market, um, building relationships with editors. So it's been a fairly, it's fairly easy transition so far. Of course, we're going to go into a slower stretch. December and January is, is always slower in the freelance world, but I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that as an opportunity to sort of reset, think about the year that passed and also the years that are, that are coming. I think it's always really helpful for us to have as photographers to have short-term goals and long-term goals and, and kind of figure out what our place is in, in the industry and, and, and how we can make ourselves better and make the industry better too. Yeah. That time for reflection, especially in kind of a big life changing moment is, is really nice to just step back and go, all right, where, where am I at? Where do I want to go? All of that. Any, uh, any pointers for photographers who are, uh, considering moving that or relocating that, uh, that you might have for them? Yeah. I, I think the most important thing is to connect with other photographers in the area. When I started in Chicago, word of mouth saved me. Hmm. If other photographers hadn't recommended me for jobs that they couldn't do, I probably would have like gotten a a job at a bar or a coffee shop and just tried to make it work for a while. You know, like it wasn't guaranteed for me and I am in the position where I have to make money. Um, so, you know, like get connected with that community. I always like to say that like, you have to be an active part of the community that of creating the community that you want to be a part of. Mm. And, and that is, that includes when you're just landing in town and you're trying to figure out, okay, what's the most important press pass, for example, which I'm just now figuring out in DC, like, how do you navigate those spaces? And the way that you're going to figure that out is by being approaching other people and also being approachable. And I always think like, you know, I wouldn't have been able to make it this far in the industry had others not helped me. So I'm trying to help anybody who comes along. In fact, just yesterday, I had like an hour long conversation with a photographer who's moving to DC. And I was like, well, (laughs) I haven't been here long. So I don't have a whole lot of um, good tips for you. But here's what I do know. And here's what I learned from moving to Chicago five years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and that stuff goes a long way. And I think that, you know, it doesn't do us a whole lot of good to um, sort of circle the wagons and, you know, kind of try to protect our patch of grass. Hmm. But if we help each other, we'll make the industry stronger and we'll make the industry better and just a more pleasant place to work and and hopefully a more inclusive place to work. Right. I mean, essentially we're, we're all on the same team and, and sometimes that gets lost. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, you got to make a living. So I understand it to an extent, but even having conversations about what's a fair day rate and what's, Hmm what's what what weekly goals and annual goals you should have financially too like that way we don't undercut each other mm. i think that's important yeah yeah and we'll get i want to get into kind of that that transition from uh staff to freelance i think that's that's something that a lot of people it's on their minds of of how do i how do i go freelance how do i do that but before we get there um how how much do you think it's important to be sort of the photographer for a certain geographic area versus mm-hmm. kind of finding your voice independent of, of geography and of location. Um, 
what do you think the balance is between that? Because it seems like we're pulled in both directions. Like you want to explore and, and make the work and move around and do all that. But if you don't get hired in a particular place, well, <laughs> you don't get work. Yeah, that's that's a real struggle. And I think that it's sort of a chicken or egg situation, too. Mm. Like, which is going to come first? Um, for me, when I I mean, I feel very connected to the Midwest. I like I, even if I'm in the Eastern time zone, I'm always thinking about that and always thinking about kind of the comparisons, especially as I've just recently moved. I feel that you only get hired for the work that you've demonstrated you're able to do, whether that's on your Instagram or on your website or for editors that you've worked with previously. And so I think that when you're trying to establish yourself, whether in a local context or as more of a photographer who takes assignments around the country or world, you have to do these assignments. You have to basically self-assign. You have to find a story that you can work on that will demonstrate your skills and also speak to what you're passionate about and what you want to do. Like I, I never intended to be a photographer who does a fair amount of work traveling around the country. It's just sort of something that's come together. Mm. But had I not done that, um, had I not worked on projects in Chicago and, and a little bit in Omaha when I was still in a staff job, it would have been really hard to establish myself at all, whether regionally or nationally or as a particular kind of photographer. And so it's really important to figure out what your voice is, figure out what interests you and how that fits in the larger market. Because you can do passion work until you're, you're blue in the face, but if it's not connecting with people and if it's not getting eyeballs on it through getting editors' eyeballs on it, it's going to be hard to go beyond that work. Um, and some of that's a little bit of luck, but some, a lot of it is paying attention to the market and thinking about what your what your space is in that in that market and i also think as photographers we have especially when we're starting out there's a lot of pressure to like know exactly what we the way that we see and know what interests us and i think that we don't however want to pigeonhole ourselves too early especially you know when you're a photographer working in your first five or ten years think about what makes you capable of telling stories rather than specifically what your vision is? Because that will come in time. You'll, you'll be drawn to the stories that speak to you and you'll be drawn to the stories that you're most capable of telling. But I think that there's like, for me, you know, being from Nebraska, I was like, oof, I don't know what's interesting. You know, like, how, how, do, I, how do I figure that out? And, and you know, I'm not, I'm not in one of these big cities and it's going to be really hard for me to stand out from other photographers because like very few people have even been through Nebraska. Mm. Um, but you know, by starting like that, the story of the one woman town, like that created in me this interest in documenting stories about change because this world that she had, had existed in for the past, um, 76 years has changed. Everything's gone. It's disappeared. And so, having that idea this this looking for ways that things change when i moved to chicago i started working on this story about an industri industrial community just over the border in indiana and started looking at how they were changing as the inland or as the oil refinery that neighbored them to the north was starting to buy their homes and demolish them and so you know i think finding these ideas finding these kernels in these themes will lead to more work, both for yourself and your personal projects, but also for commissioned work. That was a very long answer to your question, but I'm hoping I got there in some capacity. No, it's a good answer. Um, I mean, it sounds like a lot of these personal projects that you've worked on have, have really led into a lot of the work that you're getting hired for. Absolutely. In fact, one of my first uh, travel assignments for the New York Times was to go to southern Texas um, to do a project looking at environmental inequality. And the editor specifically told me that he had hired me because of the work that I had done on the industrial community in Indiana. Yeah. I mean, like, you can't get any clearer than that. It's just, it's the truth because there are so many good photographers out there that saying that you'd be able to do that assignment isn't the same as showing that you'd be able to do it. Mm-hmm. 
And how did he how did he find that particular piece? Or did you just self publish it? It got around. Um, it had published on the New York Times Lens blog. Mm, okay. And that can be a real struggle too. I mean, you know, there's we have a a beautiful built-in audience with Instagram, but there's also a lot of noise. Um, I had well, I'll take that back. I also made a visit to New York and showed it to him in in an early stage. Mm. And so that's really valuable too. If you're able to make those visits, if you're able to build these relationships, again, it's all about relationships in this industry um, and show like, okay, this is what interests me. And then also following through on it and completing the project and getting it published. It's hard to get a personal project published. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's, but there are places that will, that will bring it to light. And there are, are ways to, to get an audience and, and get it before editors. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've touched a little bit on uh, some personal work and transitioning that into getting hired. So I want to go back a little bit and and really, really going deep on that transition from staff position to a freelance one. Mm-hmm. How uh, how did you do that and not lose your mind in the process? Because it seems <laughs> like that's that is the one of the more challenging kind of career path decisions that that photographers videographers multimedia creators they're making nowadays yeah you know it's crazy the so i used to work for the omaha world herald and when i left the paper in 2014 um they had a dozen staff photographers and now they're down to two Hmm. um and i think that you see that at a lot of publications across the country there's just this huge this huge dip in fact, I, I often think of the New York Times, which had, has a similar dip. They had 45 staff photographers around that time, and now they're down to about a dozen. And I think that that's just really indicative of the way that the industry is changing. So in some ways, I feel like I had good timing. But in other ways, I also remember all of the self-doubt that I experienced and the struggle that it took to really establish myself. And right now, I'm fortunate enough that about... 75% of my work is for newspapers and magazines, but at that time it was about 10 or 15% was for newspapers and magazines. Part of that was that newspapers weren't hiring as much, and part of it was that I couldn't afford to work for the day rates, especially that some of the local publications were offering. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to really diversify my income. I did a lot of teaching then. I took I took on two classes at Columbia College in Chicago. I tried to take on like a little bit more portrait work. I was a second photographer for a number of weddings, I, which I'm happy to report I'm now retired from doing. <laughs> um, but you know, like it was rough. And when I started doing that personal project that I mentioned in Indiana, I uh, was pretty sure it was going to be my last um, documentary project. I was just like, I don't, I don't think it's gonna, I don't think it's gonna happen. So I'm gonna do one last swing at it and see if it can stick. Um, you know, and I also was doing a fair amount of, of multimedia, a lot of like one woman band situations, which are always really difficult to do. I'm sure the listeners who do uh, multimedia and video can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was all about just bringing in income from every direction possible. I often tell students that when you're establishing yourself as a freelancer, it's really important to think about your cost of doing business. The National Press Photographers Association has a great calculator for that. Mm -hmm. And and so you take that number, you have like this general idea of how much you want to make in a year, right? And then you divide that by the number of weeks that you want to work in that year. So say 50 weeks. And the first, um, the first year, my goal, my weekly goal was just to make $500, which is not really enough <laughs> to survive, but it felt like something that was attainable because you don't want to set goals that are not going to be attainable either. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew by having that number that I could take a job that paid only 200 because there's a decent chance that if I got three of those jobs, I'd make my goal for the week. But then as the years progressed and say I went up to like a thousand a week as a goal, if a $200 job came along, I knew that I'd have to get five of those in a week and that that wasn't as likely to happen. So I knew that I couldn't afford to take the $200 jobs anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it definitely does. And was it just a matter of persistence and just kind of gritting through it when it it seemed like, you know, you were at your wits end? I think so. I think it, I mean... 
there's just not much you can do to hurry it up. So you have to wait and you have to keep involving yourself in the community, like I said, and, and like seeking out other ways to get work. So like doing assisting work, for example, like the, none of this stuff paid very well, Mm -hmm. but it kept me in the business. And that's always been the goal is stay in the industry as long as I can. You know, I also will say full disclosure, I'm fortunate because I am, I'm married and I have health insurance. You know, I think that's like the magic behind any successful freelancer is someone who helps them with health insurance. Um, I think it's possible to do it without certainly, but there's, you know, there are these everyday struggles having, having someone whose income was reliable made a really big difference too. So it's, you know, you kind of figure out what your situation is and you, and you try to capitalize that on on it as much as possible. But honestly, it took two years before I was really established. And again, I think a lot of that had to do with being fortunate when, with how the industry was changing, moving towards freelance photographers. Yeah. I think that's a really important point because when you think, when people think about kind of that transition there, maybe they've had a rough month or two or three or four. And then it's, it's great. It's nice to kind of take a step back and think, well, you know, this is, this was a two year process of, of really before you kind of felt more comfortable in it. Totally. Yeah. And that's, that's awful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I mean, I think that's the point when a lot of, um, a lot of photographers end up going, going another route. You know, it's hard if you have a job working at a restaurant or a cafe or a bar because you have to keep showing up for work and an assignment will come along. So it's like, you know, you're trying to sort of you're racing against having to do that. And it's, but the reality is sometimes the market just doesn't come your way or the market changes or, you know, there are so many different factors. And I think often that photographers feel like that's a reflection on their skill set, but more than anything, it's, it's a reflection on the struggles of the industry and, and the reality that, that um, many people have to face. So I want to get into now some of some of your recent work. I, I do still want to touch on on North Dakota because I think that is just such a really impressive piece of work and and such a story to be a part of. But I want to touch on some of your recent work. Uh, I saw you were down covering the uh, border wall construction. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about what it was like being down there and and kind of something you touched on earlier in the conversation that that role of both empathy and and objectivity of the, on such a big issue like this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh, that was a whirlwind. Um, as many of my assignments are, I found out we were, we were waiting for border patrol to let us know when we were going to be able to photograph the wall. So I was kind of waiting that week and then got word the day before that we were going to be able to fly out there and, and do the job. So it was, it's a, it's a really interesting community to work in. It's, it's a very, open space, I felt. Um, it's an area of the country that I think is often misunderstood and the people who live there long for better understanding, especially the border patrol agents that I embedded with. Mm. Um, that was kind of a challenge, especially as we were, the, the main gist of the story was about the new border wall that has gone up in the last couple of months. There's a huge swath of land, uh, of, of borderland in that area. And, uh, only only a portion of it is covered, really only a small portion of it is covered. And so we were talking with the Border Patrol agents and also photographing the new part of the wall. Of course, we had like 15 minutes to photograph it, and I was tasked with doing both still photography and drone work of it. Mm-hmm. So I had 10 minutes to do the still photographs, and then I got the drone up for final five, and I was in my at four minutes 30 seconds I was getting hollered at to take the drone back down Mm. um but you know that's kind of what we work with like you were saying earlier there's just a demand to get things done quickly um you know it's uh it was an interesting experience to go out with the border patrol because there's almost a sense of camaraderie with the with the migrants that they that they catch who are trying to cross the border there Mm. um many of the border patrol agents are um, Latino and, and almost all of them speak Spanish. And so there's this, with the, with the migrants who, who they captured that morning, there was like a connection because they, they spoke the language and they, they joked with them and they had this, this ease of, of interaction there that really surprised me. And I think that's the, that's the thing we often miss out on on hot button issues like the border wall is the people who make up those stories and the people who um, interact in those spaces. You know, it's 
it's an interesting part of the country because many people there don't necessarily support the president's agenda, but many, many support the border patrol. So there's also this sort of cognitive dissonance or, or at least an unexpected tendency among the, among the people there. Um, but I think too, like that's part of our job as journalists is to get into these spaces and try to understand what the political and social and cultural um, impacts and, and influences of a community are. And do you think that's a struggle, uh, kind of given the, you know, I guess backlash is is the right word against the idea of sort of parachute journalism, where, you know, sometimes you only have that short amount of time, you're sending in someone who's not from the area, as as someone who's done the same thing, it's, it's a challenge, because you don't feel like you actually get a chance to find those nuances. Totally, yeah, and you don't want to to I mean I think a big part of our job is to fight against enforcing stereotypes right because whenever you whenever you do enforce a, st- a stereotype you are basically limiting the experiences in, in the life of a person because no one no one truly fits a stereotype there's all of these different nuances as you said to everyone's experiences and that's a huge struggle I, I was in contact with a friend of mine who's actually from the area um and turns out her dad used to, to be a border patrol agent. And so it was helpful for me to have those conversations with her too. And, you know, just that's not always possible, but it was fortunate because there's this opportunity to maybe have a better understanding and to know who are the people to talk to and also to have this person to check in with and be like, hey, is this, do you feel like this is accurate? Um, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of pressure right now for uh photojournalists be activists. And that's something that I, I think we really have to fight. You know, I think that we can advocate for individuals, we can share their stories, and we can illustrate what they've gone through and how public policies affect them and, and how the economy affects them. And, you know, these, these different aspects that are, are examples of the larger conversations that we're having across the country. But I also think that we can't go into a space and try to change that through our work. I think that we have to report what we see in an honest way that is going to, by the mere truthfulness of it, change people's minds. And that can be a real struggle, too. I certainly feel like I parachute in a fair amount, but I try to do as much research as I can. I try to speak with people from the area and I try to understand it. In as quickly as in as quick a amount of time as possible, but I think too that that's that there can be value in somebody coming in from from elsewhere because we do sometimes bring a little less baggage or or we bring um, fresh eyes to a space. Yeah, it's kind of there's there's no right approach to it. Uh, it's totally, not, it's not it's not necessarily better to have a local person or worse. Yeah, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. But I do wish I had more contacts in the ground going in. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and and the moral of that story, I think, is is like you said, like to to younger photographers, people getting started. It's like, don't be lazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, do the work, do the work on the front end that that helps make your job easier. Absolutely, absolutely, and and also will deliver a, a more honest um, representation of a of a place and time i think that's our job and if we're being lazy about it it's going to show and it's a disservice to the people we're documenting mm-hmm. and this isn't i i don't consider this a very uh techie or equipment uh heavy podcast but i i did kind of i noticed the the drone work in the piece and is that something you've added into your uh kind of quiver of uh, of skills recently is that something that's been in high demand for you as an editorial photographer so i got my license about a year and a half ago. And I would like to say that I've made money on it, but the truth <laughs> is I've about broken even. Okay. Um, but I do think that it's been a useful thing with some of the personal projects that I've done. You know, you only want so many drone shots, but it's, it is a very valuable, um, valuable skill set. In, in fact, I had a meeting this morning with a nonprofit uh, storytelling group and and they were they were asking about the drone and they said that that's a pretty valuable skill for them the real struggle for me with the drone there obviously there are a lot of regulations that you have to pay attention to but insurance is super expensive Mm. um some clients are okay with like the one-day insurance that you can buy and others require that you have like really 
top dollar insurance. So unfortunately, I shell out a ridiculous amount of money for the drone every year. But again, it's a tool. And I mean, I think like same as the camera in my bag, like it's, it's something that can make me a little bit more valuable and can help me help me tell a story better. In fact, like I'm pretty sure the only reason I got sent to the border is because I have the drone (laughs) and I have the license to fly the drone legally, you know? So it's, it's about being available and being, um, being as much of an expert as you can be on something. Mm -hmm. What made you, uh, what made you decide to, to kind of add that to the quiver? Was there some, something that came up that you said, gosh, I really, this should be a part of it. You know, I don't know what it was. Um, I felt I felt like there was a need for it. I think I was mm-hmm. I got my license around the same time that a lot of photographers got theirs, and and I wonder in some ways if that made it a little bit less um, applicable. Although, again, I have broken even every mm-hmm. year. Maybe made a little bit of money every year on it. It's I again. It's just a storytelling tool. I was mm-hmm. just happy to have the ability to get elevated and to show a wider context. And it's it's something that I. I think is going to get better. The technology is going to get better and it's already gotten a lot easier to get permission to fly in restricted areas. And it's like, it's kind of moving along. Um, but I think you have to have a lot of respect for the, for the machine because it, it can be a very dangerous thing. And I think sometimes people don't necessarily think that through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, now I want to get into uh, your work on uh, in North Dakota. So, and I guess as a way to kind of, start that out uh i just kind of want to read a a quote that that you gave for the piece with the creators project that i think really really kind of speaks to the work that that you produce there and, and read that quickly so i have to approach everyone with empathy and respect and try to portray them in a dignified way i'm not really much of a news photographer because i don't want to just take images i want to make them as a collaborative effort with the person i'm photographing there's a relationship built and a rapport there before i ever start snapping pictures so can you expand a little bit about that? That we've, we've talked a little bit about the rapport, but one of the things I mentioned there is sort of that candidates that read as portraiture. Like what, could you tell me a little bit more about how you pull together those images? Yeah, so Standing Rock was a beautiful place, but it was a, a very difficult uh, environment to make images in, mostly because there were a lot of photographers there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a... I think a lot of people viewed it as a sacred place. So there were, uh, there were opportunities to uplift people and there were also opportunities to, to unfortunately take advantage of them. So what I wanted to make sure I was doing was taking the time to walk up to someone and have like a full conversation before I even broached the subject of making their picture. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would honestly keep the camera at my side the whole time. Um, and I would have like, sometimes 45 minute conversations with people, which is not particularly conducive to photography Mm. because you need to make the image and you need to keep moving. But it was the, it was the only way I felt that I could do it in an honest way that wasn't taking from people. And so I think when you, when you're able to, and I mean, I will say, like I said this earlier, I, I will always take that experience with me because it taught me so much about listening and not talking for a while. Um, and I think that again, people want to have taking someone's photograph can be experiences. And and also like, you know, I was there for the New York times and that was a privilege because it then elevated and and amplified their voices. Mm -hmm. And, and when I talk about taking, making a portrait of someone that, that feels a little bit more natural, I think that that's what I'm trying to do is make that personal connection between us, which, which comes through in a photograph and also make this, find this way to better understand them and to see them in the, in the context of, of the larger picture of what's going on there. It's not something that we're always able to do, but when we can, I think that it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to learn about ourselves and learn about where we come from. In fact, you know, being a native, native of Nebraska, I had some sense of the history of indigenous people in the, in the area, but, you know, I met a man from central Nebraska who told me about the um, massacre of his people and I'd never heard about it before, you know, and like, it's, it's for me, that was a very vulnerable moment because I realized how little, 
how poorly educated I had been, but also how poorly, how poorly I had educated myself. And so I think there's this, when you are vulnerable with people and when you, when you're willing to give, give of yourself to them as a photographer and as a person and as a journalist, then I think that we get a more complete and more honest look at the people. How did you get that assignment? Did they reach out to you specifically for, because it seems like for something like that, it, it seems like they would go to someone more local, perhaps. I mean, because mm -hmm. you were in Chicago at the time. Yeah. So I was lucky. Hmm. I had an assignment um, for Yahoo News to photograph um, Jill Stein. She was out there. Hmm. And I had hardly at that point had any travel assignments because this was still fairly early on. I think it was 2016. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, it was only 2016. Okay. Um, I, I hadn't really done very much travel work at that point, but I got called up there and I emailed an editor at the Times on the national desk. And I was like, hey, by the way, I'm here. If, you, uh, hmm. if you're interested, I, I'd be happy to to, to wait a few extra days before flying back home. And so I ended up staying a week for that trip. And that was at a time when the New York Times had travel, had photographers travel a little bit, but they weren't doing it as extensively as they were now. Mm -hmm. um, and then I ended up coming back again a few months later to, for just a few days, uh, especially as the, as the Standing Rock started to get um, both inundated with winter and kind of... Um, started to wane a little bit in its population. And so that was a really good lesson for me of just, you know, thinking about news and thinking about what might be of interest to somebody else. So being available and being in communication. Um, and again, having those relationships because it would be very, you know, like I said, there were so many photographers there. If I hadn't already had that relationship with that editor, it would have been nearly impossible to get through. In that sort of crowded space because I, I know a number of other photographers who are there and, and seeing their work there. How, how did you differentiate your work, your approach, your results, uh, when you are in such a kind of media, you know, crowded space? Yeah, that was, that was difficult. And as, as you read from that story, like I'm not a news photographer. Um, it was, it honestly, like I get a little bit uncomfortable when I'm alongside of a lot of photographers. And I noticed that similar to international stories, there were quite a few photographers working in packs. Hmm. They would, they kind of roamed about in packs of three or four, which I, I have never done myself. And I thought it was hmm. kind of an odd thing, although whatever works for you works for you. So what I ended up doing was just, again, like wandering around and having conversations with people, keeping a low profile camera at my side and just trying to do it in a way where it felt a lot less like I was taking from people. Cause that's again, like what I just don't want to, I'd rather, I'd rather be a good person than a good photographer. And to me, that means slowing down, taking the time, making that connection because people will remember that too. And if they felt, you know, we had photography ended up getting fairly restricted at standing rock because the the leaders were sort of pissed off about how some of the photographers were acting and so i think like if you're coming at it from this place where of course we have a job to do but we can do it in a respectful way and we can do it in a thoughtful way that isn't necessarily about being able to license images down the road but you know more so about documenting this really important moment moment in, in American history, mm -hmm. especially as that was on the, you know, on the just ahead of the election and, and just after the election when I was there, you know, it's there was a, there was a lot going on in the country. And I think that that was sort of the beginning in a lot of ways of many of the, the protests and, and demonstrations that we're now kind of used to. And I think that that's important to recognize and that's important to be present to. If there's, no, if there's nothing else, my number one piece of advice is to do the work and to be present. Mm -hmm. So when you're going on a, a shoot like that, that you have, the, have one shoot, maybe it's, oh, I'll stay for another day or so. And then you end up staying a whole week. Like, you know, freelance life is, is challenging. Like what, what do you do for kind of mental health and, and well-being as a freelancer when do things do drag on, they do can take a toll? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I, you asked me at the end of the long, of a very long, busy season, so I have truthfully not been very good about it recently. And I think, like, 
in a lot of ways, it's important to admit that, that I'm fairly burned out, um, but that I'm hopeful for the next, the slow stretch that is coming, that is surely coming. You know, I, I like to spend time with my husband. I like to go to art museums. I like to read. Um, I think exercise is really important because it gets you in a different headspace. My, uh, some friends and I went hiking in Maryland last weekend and it was such a, it was a quick, simple hike, but it was so restorative because it just reset me in many ways. I think that while I do, I'm a little bit of a news junkie, I do think that reading fiction is important because it helps us, again, reset our minds, but also think about human interaction and human relationships and, you know, sort of these larger themes themes that can be applicable to our work and that can better inform how we understand people. Because that's one of my favorite spaces of photography to work in is around relationships and trying to understand how people exist within a community. Even if that doesn't necessarily come through in the photography, it, it certainly affects the photography and makes it more truthful. And so if you think about human behavior and you sort of try to study it as much as possible. It makes you a better photographer. All right. So one of the other things that I've seen that you've been working on recently is the Prism Photo Workshop. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, What are the goals? Who's it for? And uh, a little more information. Yeah. So in Chicago, we, we saw this need among younger photographers where they had all of this passion, they had all of this raw skill, but it was really hard for a lot of them to move beyond the first five years. Like it's, it's the financial pressure. It's, it's trying to survive in a market that's pretty competitive. So um, a fellow freelancer, Michelle Kanar, who also runs the um, organization called Borderless, which documents stories of, of immigrants in Chicago, and Michael Zajikowski, who's the director of photography at Chicago Magazine. And I started this workshop last year. It was kind of just a, a dream of an idea to put on this workshop that we wanted to, um, to use to uplift the voices of photographers who come from diverse backgrounds. So we had photographers from the area speak about delivering on assignment, about bookkeeping, about contracts, about proposals, but also about documenting communities with empathy and working on personal projects. And the idea is that if photographers have these skill sets when they're trying to break into the market, they will be able to survive longer, especially because many of the photographers that we were trying to reach out to are are ones who don't come from wealthy backgrounds. And I think that's one of the hardest things to overcome as a photographer is if you don't have this net to catch you when times are lean, it's going to be hard to survive. And we had really great sponsorship from Sony and from the NPPA mm-hmm. and uh, about 115 participants in our first year. Wow. And we will have another, hopefully on May 23rd, we haven't totally uh, nailed down that date yet, but uh, May 23rd at Columbia College Chicago in 2020. So we're hoping to keep this going and and keep um, reaching out to this community so that we can have more diverse voices in photography. Wow, that is awesome. That is a a great way to have a first conference and uh, everyone mark your calendars for May 23rd. That is awesome to hear. And it only Mm -hmm. costs $12. So like, come on. And you get to go to Chicago. It's great. It's great. It seems like the perfect conference. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Well, Alyssa, this has been a great conversation. Uh, We're going to go right into the lightning round of sort of quick questions, and then we'll uh, let people know where they can find your work online. Great. All right. What's the one thing in your bag that you'd never leave home without? 50, my 50 millimeter lens. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a pretty common one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What's the most important thing you've said no to uh, across your career? Uh, I a couple of years into freelance, I turned down a staff job. Oh. Uh, it was a really, 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 really hard decision, and I think it could have been a good thing had I pursued it. But I had built some momentum. I I believed in what I was doing, and and um, I'm in the long run glad that I turned it down. But mm-hmm. it was ha- it was hard. Mm-hmm. What keeps you up at night? I think feeling like you can never totally tell a story completely. Mm. I have a hard time letting stories go. I keep, I keep wanting to return to them and keep working on them. Um, we, we can never do something perfectly. So that's probably the number one thing. Mm-hmm. What do you do outside of photography that recharges you? Number one, always, always with the art. I just went to the Hirshhorn here in DC. I'm excited to go to the Nat- uh, National Portrait Gallery this weekend. I like, I really like looking at 
art that's not photography, especially, and just kind of drawing on inspiration from different places that are a different beat than photography. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to a student graduating from college university today about a career in news and or photography? Figure out what interests you and do the work. Don't wait for an assignment to come. It will it will always depend on your ability to be a self-starter and to get out there and and finish the work and prove that you can do it. Awesome. Well, Alyssa, this has been great. Where can people see some more of your work uh, and connect with you online? I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alyssa Shukar, and my portfolio is at AlyssaShukar.com. Well, Alyssa, thank you for coming on the Photo Forward podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good one. You too. Enjoying listening to the Photo Forward podcast? Want to hear more thought-provoking creative visual storytellers? Well, this is where you come in. We want to get the word out as wide as possible about Photo Forward and reach as many listeners as possible. And the best way to do that is through reviews and recommendations on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume your podcasts. If you want to support more engaging and intimate conversations with photographers, videographers, and storytellers the world over, head on over to the Photo Forward page and drop a review or even a rating. It means a ton to growing the show, and I personally read through each and every one to make sure this is the best damn visual storytelling podcast out there. As much fun as creating this series in a vacuum and pushing out content into the void is, I want to hear from you guys. Are there topics or guests that you'd love to get on the podcast here in 2020? Or are there some big nagging questions that you've got on photography or cinematography that you want me to cover in one of these solo episodes? Just hit me up at bbrewerphoto or drop an email to podcast at photoforward.media. My goal is to make 2020 a much more collaborative, community-focused season of the Photo Forward podcast, and I can't wait to keep creating with all of you throughout the year. So, as always, keep seeing, keep shooting, and keep putting your best photo forward. Later. Later.